Someone had pushed the mute button. It wasn't me, I swear. Promise, it might have been me. Uh, Full disclosure. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the very word of God. The opening words of chapter 5 make it plain to us that we're transitioning into another section, a new section in Romans. And it's a section, though, that is built upon the foundation of what we've seen in the first four chapters, those first two words, therefore, since, tell us that what we're moving on to is built upon where we've just come from. So where have we just come from? Well, in the previous chapter, the theme uh, that Jod preached about last week is justification by faith. Abraham was justified by faith, and the same holds true for you and me. Verse 24 of chapter 4, who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So if we're going to move on now uh, from justification by faith, we need to remind ourselves what this justification by faith is. And there's two main things that uh, I think that we should keep in mind when we think of the biblical teaching of justification by faith. The first one is the one that we usually don't keep in mind. And that is that it is first God who has to be justified. The word justification refers to being right or proven right. We usually use the word vindication when we talk about that kind of righteousness. And what Paul has been showing us in the first few chapters is that God has been vindicated. God has been justified. Justified or vindicated against the charge of being either unjust for overlooking sin or by the accusation of being unfaithful by not keeping his promise to Israel and to the world. So the gospel of Jesus, that is 
the person and work of Jesus or Jesus's faithfulness. This is the righteousness of God. This is where we see God justified, God vindicated. He has not overlooked sin. He has not failed to keep his promise. God is just. God has been justified. You got that? Are you with me? It's foundational to the second part. Because, of course, the second part, the one that we are usually in a hurry to get to, is that this means also then that God is not just vindicated. He is not just just, but God is also the vindicator. He is also the justifier. He is the one who can count or credit us with righteousness or rightness. He can say rightly that you and I share in his vindication. And how does he do it? By faith. It's by believing and trusting in Jesus, who he is, what he's done, that you and I rightly are vindicated, are justified. We receive the status of being right. So that's what we mean when we talk about justification by faith. It's first of all God's justification by the faithfulness of Jesus, but it's also our justification by faith in Jesus. Okay, so the next four chapters are meant to draw out what being justified by faith means. It's sort of like Paul has labored to help us see that the gospel promise is justification by faith in Christ, but now he wants to labor to help us see what this means for us who are so justified. What what are the implications for our lives today? What, What difference does justification by faith make for how we live? Okay, so we've been justified by faith, but, but now what? What else has God given to us? This is important, I think, because if we are not to be ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, then we need to be satisfied by the gospel. If we're not going to be ashamed of the gospel, we need to be satisfied with the gospel. It needs to be meaningful. It needs to be practical in our lives. Justification by faith cannot be a doctrine left in the abstract or we're in danger of treating it like a Christmas present that you received when you were young. That momentary spark of joy that doesn't usually last even beyond that very day sometimes, certainly not within the next week or so. So what we find in this passage and moving all the way now through chapter 8 is that along with justification, along with justification by faith in Christ come all the other benefits, all the other benefits of Christ. Along with justification by faith, we also have now the sure and certain basis for the enjoyment of those benefits. And along with justification by faith comes the boast that we have as Christians. That is the evidence that we are satisfied with the gospel and not ashamed to proclaim it. So 
the benefits of Christ, the basis for our enjoyment of those benefits, and then the boast that we now carry around as Christians justified by faith. Let's take a look at these three things in our passage this morning. So here in chapter 5, we get right to the question. Since we've been justified by faith, Paul writes, we have, verse 1, peace with God. We have also obtained, verse 2, access into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Peace, grace, hope. Here are the first benefits that Paul enumerates for those who've been justified by faith. Let's take a look at these. Peace with God. Now, to have peace with God means that the justified have also been reconciled to God. Verse 10, the end of our passage, reminds us that we were once at odds with God. We were his enemies. But to be justified necessarily means that we're now his friends. When we speak of justification, or when you think of justification by faith, it shouldn't be a, uh, you shouldn't just think of a status that is granted to you by an impersonal God. Sometimes we talk about justification as a courtroom scene, and indeed, it has that kind of a tone to it. But the danger with that is we think that we're on trial, God's a judge, he says not guilty, and we walk away, never to see this judge again. But the God who justified us justifies us against our sin, our crime against him. And so God could not possibly justify us and then at the same time remain distant from us. Now, this is all the more true when we remember that justification is not simply found by faith. We believe in justification by faith, but that's sort of a shorthand. It's justification by faith in Christ, in union with Christ, The doctrine of union with Christ is front and center when we talk about justification. So if we've been justified, as verse 1 states, by faith in Christ, then this peace with God is also in Christ. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reconciled to God because we've been united to God's Son by faith. So peace with God is a fact. It's a benefit that is ours who are justified by faith in Christ. If you trust in Christ then you have also been reconciled to God. And God could not possibly now hold you at a distance. God could not possibly just tolerate you. He has now welcomed you close as a friend. That's what we have if we've been justified by faith. Now, verse 2 says that through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So here's another benefit that is now ours if we have been justified. And it's here described as though we've walked into a new room. We, We now live in a new realm or in a new world. It's a realm or a world called grace. And the word grace makes us think of an atmosphere, an environment of freedom, generosity, 
The last verse of this chapter speaks of grace reigning, you know, like a king reigns, <laughs> as opposed to sin reigning. This is the new realm or the new world that if you've been justified by faith, you now live in. If you've been justifi- justified by faith in Christ, and it's also true that in Christ, you no longer live under the reign, the dominion of sin and death. So, Christian, if you feel like you are enslaved to sin, then notice here, take note of this benefit that the Bible says is yours in Christ, through faith in Christ. You have now walked into a new world, a new realm in which sin has been overcome by a greater power, and it's a power called grace. And in Christ, you have access into this greater power. That's what he says. Now, there's a third benefit. I know we could like stop with just these first two. And Paul will have more to say about them, but the spotlight kind of shines down now on the third benefit. The third benefit that comes with justification. Verse 2 also says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, the glory of God, which we said back in Romans 3.23, we lack because of sin, is something that those who are justified by faith can now rejoice in. We rejoice in the hope that what we lack because of sin is being restored and will be restored completely, namely the glory of God. If we have indeed been justified by faith in Christ, we can be certain we will not be left out of the final outcome of this faith. If we've been justified by faith in Christ, we can be sure that holding on to faith in Christ, we will not fail to receive the goal of faith. We can be certain that we will share in his resurrection, that our bodies will be raised from the dead and transformed into immortal, glorified bodies, and we will share eternally in the glory of God himself, this glory that we lack because of sin. So, peace with God, you have because you've been justified by faith, access into a power called grace, and the hope of the final outcome of faith. Now, I think way too many of us, this is, I know, true in my own experience, so I'm guessing is true for yours, We don't stop and ponder the implications of our justification by faith in union with Jesus Christ. And we need to. We live as though we have one or another of the benefits of Christ without considering the fact that in Christ, we share all of his benefits. Every single one of them. And in not believing this, or at least not thinking much about it, a verse like the one that we come to next simply seems impossible. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I suppose we could say this is a fourth benefit of our justification that's mentioned in this passage. 
Now, this is a strange benefit, to be sure, but it comes to us with an explanation. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So, suffering, the argument goes, doesn't diminish our hope. Not if we've been justified by faith. It actually produces it, or it increases it. Now, that's a fine, that's a fine argument if it's true, but here's the problem. It is evidential that it's not true, at least not in every case. You know this as well as I do. Suffering so often leads people who profess faith in Christ into hopelessness and despair. Have you experienced that? Uh, we're sitting here saying, this is what you, if you've been justified by faith in Christ, then in Christ you rejoice in your suffering. It leads to more hope. And you're saying, ha, huh. I've experienced it leading to less hope. I want you to know that the Bible acknowledges that reality. You can't read the Psalms and not say, wait a minute. Because in the Psalms, we find the words of God's people who are filled with complaints to the Lord in suffering and with clear depictions of despair. What makes the difference is not at all that Christians are spared from tribulation, nor yet that these tribulations are not in themselves distressing. The Apostle Paul himself elsewhere writes of an experience of such affliction that he says, we despaired of life itself. The Apostle Paul who wrote Romans 5 verse 3 also wrote 2 Corinthians 1.8 and tells us there have been times in his life where he says, I just want to die. The reformer John Calvin noted that the Lord sometimes so depresses for a time his people that they can hardly breathe and can hardly remember any source of consolation. But then... In a moment, he brings to life those whom he had nearly sunk in the darkness of death. So Christian, if you find yourself today saying, there is, there's, I can't rejoice in my sufferings. I want you to know there, there's good news for you. You are welcomed to come to Jesus today. There's not something wrong with you. There, this is a reality that we experience as Christians, but let's, let's hang on from him because look what he says here. Look what the promise is in Romans 5.3. We, we got to get at this. You see, Christian rejoicing and suffering usually takes place after the fact when the progression from enduring suffering has produced proven character. And this proven character then ends with increased hope. A hope which he says does not put us to shame. That is, a hope that does not disappoint us because it comes true. What we hope for comes to pass. So here's the thing. If you have hope, you can cope with just about anything. If what you have got right now to cope with ends up, in the end, 
increasing your confidence in what it is you actually long for and hope for, then suffering becomes a ground. In a strange way, it becomes a benefit that leads to even more rejoicing. Now stay with me here because the argument is being sustained in the following verses. This argument that Christians find in Christ the gift of rejoicing in suffering. Uh, and, and it's given further grounding at the end of verse 5. And it's, it's critical to the validation of what Paul is arguing here. Because you're still, you should be, you're still a little suspect about this. You find in your own experience or an experience of other Christians that th- this is hard to actually put this together. So Paul, he's with you. He's going to sustain the argument. He's going to give us a, a basis for all the benefits that we have in Christ, a, a way of being assured that this is true. And the basis, the assurance is God's love for you. If we could know that God is 100% for us, that his love for us is sure and certain, that God withholds none of his immense love for us, then even if you suffer horrific circumstances, you will hold on to hope. Because even in the dread, you know that you will one day find a sincere reason to say, I thank God for that suffering. You've heard Christians give a testimony like that before. Maybe you're in the situation now where you say, I don't, I don't see how I could ever say that. Well, here's the basis. Here's the ground that can hold you as God is developing character in you that's going to lead to hope, that's going to lead to you not being put to shame. And it is Rest assured, God loves you. 100% is for you. Yeah, but no, no. He is on your side if you're united to Christ. You're not an enemy. You're a friend. He's drawn you in close. God cannot be against you because he's united you to his son whom he dearly loves. Are you with me? So you, if, if you have that kind of grounding, if you have that kind of assurance, you will be able to say, if not now, one day, I thank God for the suffering that he called me to endure. So how do you know God loves you? Isn't this, in fact, what many people who are in a midst of great trial or suffering start to doubt? We, not, we need not only, when it comes to love, you need to not only see it, you need to feel it. There's a subjective reality of love and an objective reality of love. And, and both are important. So much so that even in this text, God sees to it that you have both. That you have both. So look here in verse 5. The first emphasis is on what we might call the subjective experience of God's love. We are not disappointed in our hope in God because, Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Poured. Not sprayed. Not sprinkled. 
poured out. God's love for his people has been poured into our hearts so that we are meant to not only know God, but enjoy him. One of the great aims of the gospel is that we experience a loving fellowship with God that is every bit as satisfying as a coffee date with a good friend or a hunting or golf trip with your best buddy. Do you experience God and his love for you like that? How can we? The text tells us through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So here's the thing. If you genuinely experience God's love and enjoy God's friendly company, it will be through the agency of the Holy Spirit. But yet, note this. The Holy Spirit, according to not only this verse, but Romans 8 verse 9, has been given to everyone who belongs to Christ. If you are justified by faith in Christ, God has poured out his love by pouring the Holy Spirit into your life. So here's the thing. The subjective experience of God's love, note this, is not a feature of personality. Nor is it some mysterious religious trance into which one might enter. It reaches our heart and leads us to see it and savor it through the agency of God's own Holy Spirit. You don't have to work yourself up into a frenzy to act like you've somehow got it. It comes through God's own Holy Spirit. So what do you do then if you don't feel this love? If you're not experiencing subjective reality of God. You don't, you don't feel loved by God right now. What should you do? And the important thing to understand here, this is critical, is that the subjective experience of God's love cannot be isolated from the objective reality of that love. Hear me. The subjective experience of God's love cannot be isolated from the objective reality of that love. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to impress upon your heart the objective reality of the love of God. Without the objective reality, whatever subjective experience you have or claim to have or lack or will be lacking in you or will be seriously deceptive. So if you just think, well, I just, I just feel the love of God. How do you know God loves you? And you don't have an answer to that? You don't have the right answer to that? Then you're deceived. Or if you're trying to find a way to feel loved by God, apart from the objective reality that the Holy Spirit pours into your hearts, then you're going to lack it. So, What is this subjective reality? And in a word, it is this at the end of verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. Or let's make it more personal. The end of verse 8. Christ died for us. Here is where we see the love of God most plainly declared and attested. And just consider the answer to three questions. First, when did Christ die? The answer comes in verse 6. While we were still weak and at the right time. And when we say, when did Christ die here, we're not talking, of course, about when in history was the crucifixion of Jesus. But the question relates to the timing of Christ's death 
in relation to the state of humanity for which he died. Jesus did not die when humans were strong, but when we were weak. He did not lay down his life for the powerful, but for the powerless. His death came at the right time because otherwise humanity would have been without rescue from their peril. Christ died when it had become clear that there could be no other hope for the world. Just think of Israel's history. Christ died at just a time, first century AD, when it became plain that Israel had no more hope. God's promise to the world through Israel was in peril, was about to be annihilated. It's at that time that Christ died. Second, for whom did he die? Ooh, now that is a theological bombshell. But let's just stay with our text. The answer in these verses comes to us in a crescendo. He died for the weak, the ungodly, verse 6, sinners, verse 8, enemies, verse 10. You see the crescendo? Weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. The point made plain is that Christ died for those who were not in any way moving toward God or seeking a resolution for the hostility between themselves and God. He died for those who were his most bitter enemies. Indeed, he died for those who were carrying out his crucifixion. Now, just think of it. Just think of it for just a moment. Who does that? We do, of course, find heroic examples of people who give up their lives for someone else. Jesus himself says, that doing this is the greatest example of love known to man. John 15, 13, greater love, Jesus says, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I mean, to, to give your life for somebody, it, it, that's, that's the clearest example of love you could possibly give, right? A person may willingly give up his life for someone who has some claim upon them, whether by relationship or friendship or by some moral imperative as in risking one's life to save someone else. We, we have all kinds of human examples of that. And it's an amazing act of love, is it not? I mean, Jesus is right. No human being possesses a love greater than you lay down your life for a friend or for somebody you deem to be innocent or, or worthy of saving. You pull over and help the stranger on the side of the road, pull them out, heroic act. Like, that, that's just, that's the best example of love. Yeah, right? Okay, I was, I was starting to wonder here, you know, man. Okay, or that too. You got to be stunned by this. Because when Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this. I saw it on a t-shirt last week. We're in a restaurant. Somebody, I was like, what? I started reading it. Oh, yeah, it's a Bible verse. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. I'm like, oh, Jesus said that. That's right. But I was like, wait a minute. I'm preaching a passage this week that says there's a greater love than that. Paul says, verses 7 and 8, 
of course, there is a reality in human experience that someone would lay down their life for somebody they deem worthy of laying their life down for. But do you see what God does? Do you see the greatness of God's love? God's love goes further still. Christ does, God does not lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies. Nobody does that. Nobody, no human being would dare to do such a thing, but God did it. God did it. He died for me while I was sinning, we just sang. Now, why? Why would he do this? It's the third question to ponder, and the answer here is simply to demonstrate the greatness of his love. Greater love has no one than this except God. Because God laid down his life for his enemies. Now, of course, he died to overcome hostility. Of course, he died to reconcile sinners to himself, to turn us from enemies into friends. God's love has a saving purpose, to spare us from his righteous wrath. And, his, and it accomplishes that purpose for his elect. Yes, yes, it does. But right here, don't miss it. Right here, the save, that saving purpose of God he died to turn us, to reconcile us. That saving purpose does not in the least diminish the free and unconditional love of God demonstrated by the, by the cross of Christ for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If you reject this love, you will perish under his righteous wrath. But this wrath in no way compromises or cancels out the greatness of his love. This is what Paul said in Romans 1, 16 through 18. God's love and God's wrath are both righteous and they are not opposites. They are made plain in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we can say is this. If pondering the gospel leads you to the subjective experience of God's great love, it's because of the indwelling testimony of God's Holy Spirit. If you taste it, it's evidence that you belong to Christ because it's only by his spirit you can taste it. You hear the word preached. You hear how great is God's amazing love for you. He died for you while you were sinning. He died for you when you were an enemy with no conditions that you would come to faith in him. That's who he died for. If you hear that and it moves you, it moves you, it is a testimony of God's Holy Spirit pouring that out in your heart. If we're singing songs like we sang this morning um, about God's great love, the deep love of God for us, if you're singing about that and you're just thinking, pondering on the cross and the amazing display of God's love, which no one could match, if that happens to you, the band might be good, but it's because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What if you're not moved? What if none of this hits you at all? What should you do? You should ask the Holy Spirit to help, for sure. It's only through his agency that the love of God is poured into your hearts. But you must look to the gospel you got to keep your face right there in the gospel. 
you have to look to the cross of Christ and what he has done for you there. For this is the greatest display of God's great love. And it is his love that assures you that even if you're suffering, all the benefits of Christ are yours. Now, when we come to verse 9, we find yet another implication that emerges from our justification. It's, it's another benefit. They just keep coming. I mean, look at what else God has given to us. Verse 9 tells us there is still much more, much more. I mean, it's like verse 8 was enough. Much more, verse 9. We keep unpacking the treasures of Christ, and as we do so, the response could only be celebration. You're just opening another gift. We have this in Christ? Yeah, there's more. Another one? Yeah, and there's more. I mean, it just keeps going. You're just, you're going to start smiling as you see these benefits. I mean, it's just overwhelming you. You can smile behind your mask. It's totally okay. You're just overwhelmed with the treasures that are yours in Christ. I mean, all you could do is rejoice. I mean, you, you, what God has given to you, purchased for you at the cost of his love, his great love, has to make you smile, has to rejoice. Or the word actually here is boast. The boast of the Christian because of the benefits of Christ. Now, notice the word rejoice in verses 2 and 3. You see it there twice, but you come across it again in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So three times in this passage, we find this verb to rejoice. It's a Greek verb that occurs 36 times in the New Testament. It is the Greek word for boasting. And in fact, the English Standard Version that I'm using here this morning translates it boast in virtually every other place except here. And I'm thinking, I wish they didn't do that. <laughs> but that's just me. I mean, it is rejoicing too, but everywhere else they translate it boasting. And I, I kind of wish at least it helps my alliteration. So we're going to keep the boast. We're going to keep the boast. Boasting is the expression of taking pride in something. So it's not inherently sinful. It's only sinful, and it's always sinful, if the object is anything other than God himself. And in fact, it's also sinful if you don't boast at all. <laughs> oh, I love this. God commands you to boast in him. God commands you to rejoice. Can there be a greater sin than to be dissatisfied with God and all the benefits he's granted to us freely in Jesus Christ? You start seeing what all you have in union with Christ and you say, nah, got a movie to watch today. That's going to be awesome. Something's wrong. I got a big meal coming up. Wish the sermon was over. That might be okay. But still, <laughs> something's wrong. Something's wrong. Don't you see? Don't you see? God has, out of his great love, poured out upon you, sinner, enemy of God, 
amazing treasures, all the benefits of Christ, how can you not boast? How can you not rejoice? Now listen, Christians are not commanded to pretend. We can be, as Paul writes elsewhere, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Why? Because we are well aware that things are not yet what they ought to be, but we are confident that God's promised outcome will come to pass. So our boasting is a strange one. There's no other boast like it in the whole world. Because our boasting shows up all the time. It doesn't just show up when you are pleased with what's happened in your life this week and you say, I just want to praise God for this. It shows up when you suffer. That's when we still boast in God. Why? Because all the benefits are ours in Christ. Even if we die, yet shall we live. In verse 9, the apostle speaks of the now present reality of our justification by his blood. We who trust in Christ are already justified by virtue of his death. Sacrificial nature of the cross signifies the establishment, the inauguration of the new covenant. And that is the great promise of the Old Testament, indeed of the entire Bible. This is where we've come to, Christian. In Christ, we have already come, in one sense, to the end of the story. But that does not mean there's not more to come. That, that there's not still a future into which the gospel still speaks and offers hope. Fairy tales end with, and they all lived happily ever after. And you ever wonder, well, tell me about that. <laughs> the gospel tells us more about what comes after. If we are already justified members of the new covenant by virtue of Christ's death, much more, verse 10 explains, shall we be saved by his life. So verses 9 and 10 are parallel and complementary. They tell us that both justification, righteousness, and reconciliation are benefits that are ours in Christ, gained for us by the new covenant, inaugurated by his sacrificial death. It's the end of the story. It's where you're ready to hear, and they lived happily ever after. But the point of these two verses is to highlight how much more there is still to be gleaned in the fact that Christ lives. He lives. If we've been given so much by virtue of Christ's death, then can you just imagine what all we've been given by virtue of his resurrection? If the death of Christ on the cross was the great display of the most powerful love there could possibly ever be, a love that, yes, if you embrace it, transforms you, reconciles you you to God, turns you from enemies into friends, gives you all of these great benefits. If it does all of that, then just imagine what you have because you've been united to him in his resurrection, his resurrection life. So again, the death of Jesus means among other things, that the problem of God's wrath against sinners has now a solution, a solution which includes turning sinners from enemies of God into friends. But God's purpose for us in Christ is yet so much more. Oh, man. His purpose is life from death, even life beyond death, or a life no longer confined or threatened by death. That is the resurrection of the body for which we await. And it's still in our future. 
But it's every bit as exciting as Easter morning must have been for Jesus' disciples. And yet I have to say this as we close. Even that future benefit that still waits in our future. I mean, I'm not looking at resurrected bodies right now. I mean, you guys look pretty good today. But I'm not looking at resurrected bodies. So yes, it's still in our future. But even that has a present manifestation and enjoyment. Remember, we have come to share in the benefits of Christ by sharing in Christ himself. And since Christ has already died, you've been united to him in his death. But since Christ has already been raised, you have already now, in some sense, come to share in his resurrected life as well. Verse 10 says that we are saved by his life. (laughs) That is, his resurrected life. It means that not only have we been spared from the coming final judgment, from the wrath of God, from hell. Some of you, your testimony is you came to faith in Christ at a young age because you were scared of hell. Okay, but much more, much more. We've been granted life. You've not just been spared from eternal death. You've been simultaneously been granted the resurrected life of Christ himself. Now, When we think then of what it is that we've been given in Christ, we cannot think only of what we have in his death. We must also ponder what we have in his resurrection. Only then can we think of what all we have been truly been given, not merely a salvation from sin and death, but a salvation to righteousness and life. Entrance into God's new world, where as one New Testament scholar says, we are saved not as souls, but as wholes. W-H-O-L-E-S. If we can see this, it will have a profound effect on everything in life. Brothers and sisters, God loves you. He loves me. He loves all that you are. He loves body and soul together. He cares about every aspect of your existence. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. (laughs) And the God who has given you life will in Christ give you even more life. A life more abundant than you could ever dare to dream. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would turn our affections, our attention to one place alone, to the cross of Christ and his subsequent resurrection. Because in what Jesus has achieved for us by dying for our sins and being raised for our justification is not only an escape from the righteous wrath of God, an escape from sin, death, and hell. But he has also granted to us by his incredible love entrance in to a life of righteousness and glory forever. Even death will not have the final word because the body that dies will come to life just as sure as Jesus walked out of the grave on Easter morning. 
all of this is granted to us in union with Christ. So I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters. I pray for those who do not yet believe that Jesus will be our hope. Jesus will be our peace. That we will find that Jesus even is the grace that we long for as sinners. And that we will come to Jesus. Embrace Jesus. Follow Jesus. Love Jesus. Be devoted to Jesus. Be loyal to Jesus. Hope in Jesus, the one who has given us life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.